Hello and welcome to episode 217 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In Los Angeles, I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia is Ben Olson. Ben, what's the latest? Did your students crush the LSAT yesterday? Oh yeah, that is the latest. The LSAT was yesterday. Um, yeah, the feedback I've heard so far has been positive, but mixed as usual. So, But I would say positive. It sounds like the games were a little bit easier than last time. I haven't Probably yet heard surprising. anything negative about it at all from anyone. Um. I have heard people going out of their way to tell me how effing easy it was. That's great. That's really good. So, to hear. yeah, it makes me wonder why the LSAT always is so. It's why does it have to vary so much in difficulty? <laughs> it's like always the same, but then it's always, but then it's not because they do make the games fluctuate a lot in difficulty. Yeah, which I just, I'm wondering what they're. Do they even know that they're doing that? Yeah, do they have different people who are responsible for that section of games? Like different teams? <laughs> they're like, George, you've got the September test. Yeah. Janet, you're in charge of the <laughs> November test. And then they just, I mean, it's not substantively different, but you can just, like the logic game sections, it's just clear that, um, you know, that uh, the prep test 88, the most recently released section, it wasn't as hard as everybody made it out to be, but it's harder than a lot of recent tests. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just is. I mean, it has a couple hard questions in it, and most tests don't. Yeah. So, well, I felt like each game was doable, but there was like one twist in, like, not a twist even. It's just like a rule that's kind of rare, maybe a rule I've seen once before. And I could see that slowing people down or th- making them think twice. And I'm thinking, oh yeah, okay, well, I've seen that before. This is how I'm going to approach this. And it's like, you do that in one game and that's the norm. But it felt like that was true in all four games. Maybe the last game was the most normal in my mind. But even then, Worlds was immensely helpful and a lot of people wouldn't do it, I don't think. Because but then the you ended up at least didn't you feel then that the fifth que- so we're talking about the third game the one about the lily of the flowers right and the, mm. yeah if you make well the fifth question was tough yeah because they 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 did ben, a substitute not a not why a, do they do that yeah. I want to call I'm going to talk to my my new psychometrician friend and I want to show her this game and I want to talk to her about the effect that it has on people it's super fucked why do they do it because. It, that that was a great candidate for skipping. People should have skipped that question. You could do four that oh, because that sure. game. So it's the hardest game in the section, but it only had five questions. You don't necessarily know it's the hardest game in the section until you do it. Once you start it, especially if you make worlds, the first four questions are super easy. Mm-hmm. Then the fifth question, which is only worth one point, is super super nasty. It actually changes the rules. It does. So yeah. if, if you did make worlds, you, now you have to start over. And it's a clear, to me, it seems like a very obvious, hey, skim it maybe, but don't take too much time on it. Do the fourth game, then come back and answer this question. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And But people who don't have like fancy test prep would never do that. People without, with, you know, people without me saying, well, you know, it's only worth one point. And they do tend to, for some times, have a final question in the game that changes the rules that's really, really difficult. Yeah. Like, that is an attack on people who haven't like had fancy LSAT prep. I just don't understand. I mean, they they surely can't be doing that intentionally. Mm, yeah, but 
I, I don't know. That, if I could make one change to the LSAT, that would definitely be the change. I mean, do, make that the last question on the last game. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I mean, it does, that question does test oh, your understanding of how rules relate because it's actually not that hard um, when you think about one of the rules that they gave you originally that wasn't changed. But uh, just to clarify, by the way, for our listeners, there are substitution questions in which they ask you to find a rule that would replace one of the rules in the game. This is not that. This is, we're going to tell you that one of the rules is now gone and has been replaced with a new rule that we're giving you. And then they ask you which one of the following must be true or could be true or whatever. And they're actually changing the function of the rule. They're actually changing the way the game sets up. They're mm-hmm. not changing all the rules, but they are changing the total possibilities in the game. I mean, they're introducing the possibility of a new outcome and restricting a lot of old outcomes because they're adding a new different rule. Well, not just adding a rule, they're getting rid of one, right? That's the real challenge. They're getting rid of an old rule and adding a new rule. And, yeah. oh, by the way, this is something that they haven't done a lot in the most recent like 40 practice tests. Yeah, but they have done but it. But they in the did past. it a lot in prep tests one through 40. So I yeah. saw that and I was like, oh, great. I've been spending a lot of time in the very old practice tests. Nice way to pull something out from, you know, 1992. Yeah. And hey, you know, it does reward people who are super well prepared. Like the more prep you do, the better you're going to do on whatever game sections you encounter. But it does strike me as for all of their nonsense about justice and whatnot. Like, why would they reward somebody for? It just seems like it really rewards me. It, like, like they're trying to make us rich, Ben, which doesn't make any sense. I don't know. It just why don't they just do it in more of like a sort of like the questions just kind of get harder and harder as you get deeper into the section instead of throwing in. I mean, because I, I just feel I feel so sorry for the kid who got stuck on that question and took five minutes on it. Even if they got it right, it's a disaster because they could have done the entire fourth game in five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're I guess we're we're putting the message out there here for free that when you see that question, it's the last question on the game, and if it just seems like it's going to be super difficult, there's really no shame in skimming it, seeing if you can infer the answer, take a little bit of time on it, but not five minutes on it. Yeah. Because five minutes is just a disaster, even if you get it right. Anyway, today on the show. Wait. Sorry. Last thing. Yes. Given given how the October LSAT seems to have gone, uh, it's, I believe it's a non-disclosed test, so we'll never know for sure. But um, I've heard positive feedback. You've heard positive feedback. The games seem like they were uh, easier, possibly much easier. Yes. This just hammer homes hammers home. <laughs> Is that a good phrase? Anyways, this just proves the point that you should plan on taking the LSAT at least twice. If you're shooting for November, great. Sign up for November and January because you don't know which test you're going to get. It could be easier the first time. It could be easier the second time. But different tests play to your strengths. Different tests play to your weaknesses. Just take it a couple times. For Minimum sure. a couple times unless yeah. you kill it the first time out. But even then, I think people should be. I think people should be willing to go to the limit that the LSAC will let you take it if necessary. Because I have a student in San Francisco who just told me, and it's a bummer that he didn't take the October test because he, I'm sure he would have killed it because it sounds like it was so easy. But this dude is a really nice guy in San Francisco, and he 
he took it four times. I don't know his whole previous test history, but he took it four times. And even though his practice test scores have touched 170, his highest score on record is a 161. Whoa. And he's talking, and he has like a 4.0 from like UC Berkeley. Mm. And he wants to go to like Berkeley Law or like Stanford, even, you know, would be in the cards for him because he has such good grades. And now he's talking about, well, you know, I, I just, I, it, he's, it, something went wrong on the day. He's like, he hasn't been sleeping well, whatever, you know, it's like, okay, I get it. Like you had a bad day, but he's like, well, I think what I'll do is I'll just apply to, I'll just apply this cycle and, and then just, you know, if I, if I don't get into Berkeley, I'll just, I'll just, what do you think if I just start at Hastings and then plan to transfer? Oh, yeah. It's a long and I'm path. like, dude. Well, everyone at Hastings thinks they're going to transfer to Berkeley. Yeah. And, and maybe you will. Like, sure, some people will. But, like, really, only the top 10% of the class has that option. Yeah. So, is that what like, you're betting on your ability to go in and kick ass for an entire year of law school and transfer to Berkeley? Like, that's, that's your wager instead of just retake. You know, and then it's funny because people don't actually know the limits and stuff. Well, I'm, isn't there a limit? to how many times you can take it? Five times, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, five times in any two years, but that only started with the September test. Mm-hmm. So basically, he's only taken it once, according yeah. to the LSAT restrictions. Yeah, And I'm just like, dude, this is the beginning of your legal career. I understand that you're so desperate to start law school right now, but if you just waited until, you know, like take some time off, maybe, because you seem burned out. But take some time off, take it a couple times more in the spring, and then apply on September 1 of next cycle, and then maybe let the you know chips fall where they may. But I just can't imagine that it's a good decision for this guy. After all the prep and all the practice tests that have been in the high 160s, low 170s, and he's going to really settle for a 161 because he's already taken it four times? Yeah. I, that can't... I, I, I know it's uncomfortable, and you know probably he's got pressure from friends and family and stuff, yeah, it's uncomfortable to wait, but like I, it just seems like a no-brainer. You could launch yourself into an entirely different trajectory for your legal career. Yeah. Well, and some people too are like, "Well, what's it going to look like to have five? And it's like, yeah, it's a little, <laughs> it's mildly strange that you've taken it so many times. But at the same time, compare that to okay, so you have five tests. One of them is a one seventy. Or you have four tests and your highest is a 161. Yeah. It's just, it's not. It The downside is like pennies and the upside is thousands of dollars. Yeah. I, I, I would rather have someone who took it six or seven times who had finally scored a 168 over someone who took it four times and scored a 161. Absolutely. It doesn't, that does not flow through to the ABA report. The schools don't have to say how many times you took the test, they don't fucking care. They care about the highest number because that's what's going to go on the ABA 509 report. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. Like people feel all the shame or whatever, but it's like they're not. <laughs> you have to, th- I don't know. And people are also, what they're doing is they're taking sunk costs into account, right? Mm-hmm. They're thinking about yeah. the sunk cost. It doesn't matter. You took it four times. Your high is a 161. I don't give a shit. I care about the next time. Like that already happened. Whatever. You know, if you had taken it one time and had a 161, you would clearly be retaking. Yeah. How does that make any difference if you have taken it four times and have a 161? 
whatever. Yeah, there's three other bad scores on your record. So the big, the better score is the one that's going to count. I don't know. Anyway, um, anything else you want to say about that? Nope. Uh, today on the show, finally, we are going to have a law school expert, Anne Levine. She is here to talk about a uh, interesting experience she had with a half marathon that she really trained her ass off for, and then uh, it didn't go quite as expected. Um, we thought that that was there's some nice analogies there to life and to the LSAT and. Anne is our favorite guest to have on the show, so um, be nice to have her. We'll get to that in just a second. We have a uh, pearls versus turds, um, which is about it's kind of runs counter to some uh, advice people normally give about the LSAT. And a listener writes in and asks for our favorite drink. <laughs> they want to buy us a drink because they did well on the LSAT, so we'll talk about that. Hmm. Um, we have a question, someone just asking where, I guess, where they want to apply. Okay, fine. We have an email from uh, my favorite law school to make fun of and least favorite state, um, which is Arizona. They send out the amazing... You don't like the whole state? Yeah, fuck Arizona. Wow. I told you that already. That's that's well established. I know. I'm still trying to get my mind wrapped right. around Arizona's that. Arizona's canceled. Like Arizona. no, that sucks. Um, <laughs> then... I wanted. Is it the worst one? No, I think there's worse states than that. But um, <laughs> Arizona is so close that I, it's like accidentally I might go there. So I have to remind myself how bad it oh, is. I gotcha. Okay. So let's see. This show is going to air on November 4th. Uh, upcoming events are the November LSAT on November 25th. That's basically it. Email the show. Wait, did you just skip over it? Did you skip over the oh, Scientology right. thing? <laughs> I last night I was um, contemplating, and I, I have a new idea that I want to explore, which is that law school and Scientology are basically the same thing. Did Did you get this idea after you joined Scientology, or how's that going? <laughs> by the way, <laughs> no, I uh, no, I, I've never joined Scientology, um, but uh, I do live in Hollywood, where there's nothing but Scientology around everywhere so uh, it's uh, in the consciousness around here yeah sure sure um let's see we can uh you can email the show uh help at thinkinglset.com when you do that you can send us a selfie of you studying or being a goofball or whatever we can include you on our social media if you like please leave us a review on itunes i think that's about it anything else you want to add before we go get Anne? no that's all Okay, here's our uh, pre-recorded interview with Anne Levine. Today on the show, we have Anne Levine, the law school expert. And I asked you, Anne, to come on because I read one of your recent blog posts about a marathon. I think you ran a marathon, right? A full marathon? It's a half. Oh, it's a half. Still, yeah, that's... now you don't want me on the show anymore. It's only a half. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's more than I've ever done, so that's, <laughs> that's great. Um, anyways, I read the post and it was about all the preparation that you had done to execute this half marathon and some of the challenges that you encountered. And I thought, yeah, this, this does sound a lot like the whole LSAT law school application process. Um, and so I wanted you to come on the show and share with us what you experienced and go from there. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah. We love I, having you on the show. <laughs> thank you. I love being here. I am. Um, I don't often post about personal things, but I remember once I did one on 
at meditation years ago, and we talked about that too. And I talked to Nathan's class about that as well. Every so often, something just really resonates. And I do think it's easy for people who are taking the LSAT to get into this LSAT bubble where that's really the only thing that exists and nothing else applies to that experience. But I guess my story is this. Um, uh, this is my fourth half marathon in the last uh, little over a year. And I, that's all I've done, just those four. I did one in May being very injured, um, not able to train for it, but being stubborn and doing it anyway. And had the, in hindsight, unfortunate experience of having the best time I've ever gotten in a half marathon. And so I thought, wow, just imagine if I took the time and really prepared and got myself healthy and worked with a coach and did everything right. Imagine what I could do five months from now. And hearing myself say this now, I, I do hear echoes of my clients who exercise similar quote unquote logic <laughs> with respect to retaking the LSAT, right? They, they take it out of the gate with little prep. They knew they should have done more. They did well. And they think, wow, I could do so much better with a little prep with, that, with doing the prep, right? With going through the training process appropriately and putting my all into it. Sometimes that works out. And as I learned, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. So I, I really trained, um, worked with a coach um, on everything from pacing to um, sprints, nutrition, uh, strength training. I, I got myself to a really good spot. And I, I was pretty confident come race day that not only was I going to meet my previous time, but exceed it. Um, and that is so not what happened. Um, I felt good at first, so I got a little cocky, and then I went out too fast, and then I couldn't get my heart rate back down, and then something, the weather threw me, it got really hot, it was like 86 degrees when I was finished, you know, just a series of things, and as I was running, all of these things really did feel to me like LSAT issues, right? Oh, the proctor was two hours late, this happened on my tablet, um, the test center sucked for a thousand different reasons. The person in front of me interrupted me by coughing every 22 seconds. You know, all these things happen, but the key is we kind of have to perform anyway. And if we can't perform under those conditions, I mean, life doesn't give us ideal conditions, right? <laughs> so, so those were a few yeah. of the starter lessons that I learned uh, and had lots of time to think about during my almost two hour half marathon. I could, I could go on and on about these analogies. <laughs> Yeah. Well, what's your uh, plan? Are you going to run another half marathon and see what you can oh, do? Oh, good question. So I kind of, you know, for that, while I was running, I was thinking, I'm never doing this again. This is horrible. I'm picking a new hobby. And that probably lasted a good half mile that I was like, yeah, I'm done with racing. And then, um, of course, I thought the better of it, even though I was in, you know, I was dying on the course and not even sure I'd finish. And I started thinking about Exactly. It sounds so cheesy, but I have uh, my best friend just went up for a promotion and she didn't get it the first time, but she got her wherewithal together and she applied for the same promotion next time it was available and got it the second time. And what would I have told her not to try again? I wouldn't have told her that, you know, if it was worthwhile mm -hmm. to try the first time, it's worthwhile to try again. Um, she got the job. <laughs> and then I was thinking about my clients. Like, would I tell them if they did the prep and their test scores told them, you know, their practice test scores were in line with where they wanted to be and they just didn't execute on a particular test day? Would I tell them, so what? You're done. Like, take what you've got. No, I would tell them, well, your practice tests are in line with something five points higher, eight points higher. Let's try this again, you know? So I had, I, I, the next day I met with my longtime coach, who's not the coach who ran me through uh, this race, but. Um, someone I, I've worked out with for a long time and really trust. And I sat down with him, you know, for coffee the next day and I said, okay, so 
what do I do here? Do I, you know, my next half marathon isn't scheduled till March, but like, I don't know. That's a lot of pressure to wait six months to kind of get a redo. It's like waiting six months for another Elsa, right? Um, (laughs) you kind of want to see what you can do. And so we decided that I am going to try this again in December and we're changing up my, we're fine tuning my running uh, plan for the next 11 weeks to get me there. And it's hard. Like I've only done two runs so far in this new running plan and it's hard and it's different and it's uncomfortable, but, um, that's what change is. And if you want results and you want progress, sometimes you gotta, you gotta amp things up, right? Yeah. So how much do you think that your challenge was in the last race due to your training, maybe not being as adequate as it could have been versus just maybe having the wrong mindset? Like, oh, this is going to be easy. And then when it wasn't, that threw you off? Yeah, I don't think I ever thought it was going to be easy. Um, But I think I thought I was ready. Mm. Um, I felt super prepared. I'd gotten lots of sleep. I'd hydrated. (laughs) I'd tapered for the race, you know, uh, which means like uh, lowering my workouts in the 10 days before and not overdoing things. I'd, I'd really done everything right. So I felt very prepared and in a good mindset. And I didn't start feeling bad during it until I started to see other people doing better who I know I should have been beating. Like when the 150 pace group passed me, that was a bad moment. Um, I think for me, I hope this will resonate with people starting for the LSAT. The LSAT and running is not a one size fits all approach, right? I mean, you've got to find the approach that works for you. Not the same LSAT tutor or LSAT program is, is what's going to maximize everyone's score. And sometimes it takes some trial and error. And over the summer, uh, I was working with a coach who really felt that it was important for me to get a lot of slow miles in, which was a challenge for me because usually if I'm going to run, I'm going to run fast. And he Mm. really felt that I needed to work on endurance and, you know, work on keeping my heart rate below a certain level while I was running. And so it was a different kind of focus. And you guys have known me for a long time. Intensity is kind of my thing. Um, taking it down a notch, not really so much my thing. So I think maybe some of the approach wasn't right for me as a person, as a runner. And I think probably doing fewer miles more intensely is the better way for me to go. And I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, I talked to so many people who are like, oh, I studied for the LSAT 60 hours a week, 10 hours a day in the library. And I'm like, really, who, who can be productive? Whose brain power is productive sitting there like that 10 hours a day? Like, wouldn't it be so much more productive to do like two really good hours, go, go to yoga, go get lunch, see a friend, come back, do two really good hours again, you know? And I think, I think that's true. I, I think it's true that more is not necessarily better, that better is better. And so that's the kind of the, how I'm going to try approaching my, my training in the next couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. Nathan, any thoughts? I was wondering if you like tried to, tried too hard. Like you, you cared too much about it. Ooh, guys, I didn't know we'd gotten the psychology degrees. Um, (laughs) usually I'm on this end of things, um, doing the psychoanalysis. Okay. So it's very possible, but what I didn't do is overtrain. I was very careful to not overtrain. I wasn't in the mindset that, oh, if it's good for me to run 10 miles this weekend, it's even better for me to run 12. And the reason I wasn't overtraining is because I know that's how I got hurt. You guys know this. I don't know how much the readers, you know, listeners know this, but about two years ago, I lost a considerable amount of weight. I'd never been an athlete of any kind. I lost like 
25 pounds and I got in really good shape and I felt like, wow, now let's see what I can do. Let's take this for a spin, right? And I started doing too much. I started thinking it was okay that I was strong enough to do two workouts a day or if someone was running, you know, eight miles, I could do 10. And and that came back to bite me. I mean, that's really how I injured myself is through overtraining. So I actually think this time around, I'd learned that lesson and wasn't overtraining. I, I think that I did the plan. I worked the plan and maybe it just wasn't the right plan for me. And maybe honest to God, maybe just running in 86 degree weather is not my thing. And that's okay. That, you know, progress, I tell this to my um, law school applicants all the time, especially about LSAT, you know, progress is not always linear. Sometimes as we're getting something and as we're struggling with something, we're going up and down, up and down because we're working on different things. And it takes a while for all the moving pieces to come together and hit kind of that magic spot that is at our potential. And I think that's the process I'm in. I think I'm in a process. I mean, I'm a 45-year-old runner. It's not like my my progress is going to be linear. <laughs> um, I'm going to have some dips. And as my husband uh, said to me, which I probably didn't appreciate enough uh, an hour after the race, you know, and you can't PR every race. You can't. And you can't, um, you're not going to see on your practice exams a consistent upward trend every single time you sit for one. That doesn't mean you're failing in the process. But it's how things look over time that you really need to analyze. And I do feel confident that over time, I'm going to get to that 145 and maybe even a 142, but it is not going to happen overnight. Yeah. And and these are not LSAT scores I'm talking about. No. <laughs> <laughs> these are race times, just to, just to clarify. Yeah. I, we just see this all the time with students who, and it, it actually really does analogize, I think, that um, students who didn't overstudy they didn't over prepare but they they prepared perfectly like they it was an, a consuming thing that they never stopped thinking about and then you know so they did everything right they know they did everything right and then it's like well now because i did everything right today is the day it's going to be the day like an entitlement yeah, feeling or just it's an, an entitlement. Yeah, like, letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, kind of. That they they, and it mm-hmm. sounds like that's what you sort of did, right? You you went out too fast, and because you know you were ready, you were going to kill it. Today was your day, and it's a little bit like swinging for that one eighty when you're totally capable of a one seventy two, but instead you swing for the one eighty and you score one sixty, and that happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think to me, for me, I, I can I can break down the analogy further. I actually paced myself pretty well at first, but mile three and four had a huge downhill, and I love the downhills, and I race the downhills. So it's like getting that question type you love, or getting like my daughter just took the SSAT, which is the test you take for prep school for high schools, uh-huh. um, and she was so psyched. She walked out of that test a couple weeks ago. Mom, one of the reading passages was Little Women. I nailed it, right? It happened to be a book she had just yeah, read yeah. this summer. And and I think that there was a little of that, like, oh, I've got this great downhill. I'm nailing the downhill. And then what happened after that? I was so excited about how well I ran that downhill at a seven-minute pace that I couldn't find my footing again right. after that. Like mile five had an uphill in it and I like was still excited about my downhill and literally had to downshift and couldn't. And, and I think that's, that happens a lot too. Like, Oh, I nailed this, bring it. And then suddenly you're stymied and you're like, wait, now this is messing up my whole day. Right. So all we're talking about here is LSAT or life as a head game, right? It's just a head game. And 
are all these things we're talking about, are we overthinking things or, is, or at what point is it not productive to analyze like exactly what my heart rate was in mile four as one of my coaches wanted to do, right? Yeah, I think it's just people not accepting that there's going to be variability on the actual day. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's people true. hold on to the steering wheel so tightly. They, they, you know, they, they've, they've prepared perfectly and then they kill question one, two and three and they're feeling really great. Like this is, I'm, you know, today's my day. I'm so awesome. And then they hit a hard one. Like there'll be an unexpectedly hard question in the first 10 and they're not ready. You know, they, they, they thought they were going to breeze through the whole day. And now all of a sudden they just stumble a little tiny bit. And then the whole thing comes crashing down because they have these crazily unreasonably high expectations that everything's going to go perfectly. Yeah. I think that, you know, I always like when we talk about LSAT at some point to bring the, the picture bigger, right? The LSAT is not the means to the end. And if little things throw you in life, when you get to court and the judge throws things at you or opposing counsel throws things at you, like, how are you going to react? Like you can't perfectly prepare for every question you're going to be asked in the courtroom or every issue right. that's going to come up and, and, or every, every issue that comes up during a negotiation at, at a board table or, or every um, fact that a claim gives you is not going to be in your favor. I mean, this is life, you know? And I think it's important that, we take those step back, steps back and just realize like how you deal with this is just how, is not just how you deal with this. It's how you deal with everything else. And if you really, really throws you to have to analyze what you could have done better and to, to know that things aren't going to go perfectly all the time, it just because it counts that time. I mean, that's not life and that's not certainly not the legal profession in whatever area you choose to practice it. So I think it's important to just keep these things in perspective, do what you can go in, do the best you can. If it doesn't go how you feel it should and a retake is the right option for you, then retake. But I'm actually glad we're back to having limits on retakes because I feel like it was becoming this sickness. Like I have to take it again. I have to take it one more time. I have to take it one more time. But here's the thing. I physically cannot run a marathon or half marathon every month, right? My body needs a day to recover for every mile that I race. It's the same with the LSAT. Your brain can't go at 100% functioning every day in a row, multiple days in a row in, in September and in October and in November. Like you, your brain needs a rest just like your body needs a rest. And I think that it's really important to recognize that you're not going to be able to continue to keep that energy and that, that mental awareness at a steady state for three months running. I'm not sure the analogy carries that far, but, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I've, I don't know that the LSAT is, you don't think people are exhausted after they take an LSAT and they need they, a little downtime. For sure. They need some downtime, but I think uh, the next month is fine. I mean, I've seen so many people crash and burn one month and then kill it the next month. I, I just oh, don't. That's fine. I, that's absolutely fine. But I think it's this month after month after month thing. I think, the constant chase is exhausting. Yeah, people do need to find some time for recreation for sure. If it's every single day for three months straight, then that's you know that's bad for business, I think. And we're going to link to this <laughs> blog post on the show notes for this episode. But where else can people go to learn about you? Thanks. Well, the blog's a good place to start at lawschoolexpert.com. I've been keeping that blog since 2006, and I respond to all the comments um, personally. And it's attached to my website, which is lawschoolexpert.com. And I'm always happy to answer questions through there, through Instagram at lawschoolexpert. 
or Facebook at Law School Expert. Sounds great. And you're running another half in December? Yeah, you guys are the first people I've told about that. So oh, wow. <laughs> have you told my husband I'm going to try this Breaking again? So let's not tell him. Hopefully he doesn't <laughs> listen to the podcast. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, hopefully you'll come back on uh, and let us know how that one went and how your, how your retake, how your half marathon retake went. <laughs> thanks, Nathan. I appreciate it. And thanks, Ben. Thanks for joining us. All right. Um, you want to uh, tackle this pearls versus turd? Yeah. Hi, Ben and Nathan. Passing on something that helped me now that my LSAT journey is over. Okay. I scored a 170, canceled in July. Oh, okay. You decided to cancel your 170. And a 180 in September. Hmm. Following common online advice, Power Score, Princeton Review, I just relaxed on the day before my July LSAT and specifically did not do any LSAT prep. Okay. I would say that we generally give that advice as well. In contrast, following advice from a random person on the internet who had previously scored a 180, I took a full practice LSAT and a couple practice sections the day before my September LSAT. Okay. Obviously, there are a lot of things that help with scoring highly on the official LSAT, with luck being a significant factor. (laughs) But I think... Why are you laughing? Uh, Nothing. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I'm glad this person does recognize the luck involved. Uh, That's just life, I guess. But I think this tip really helped me both mentally be both mentally primed and locked in during the September LSAT. Thanks in part to strategies from this podcast, I was pretty consistently scoring 178 plus with several 180s prior to both the July and September tests. So going into the July test, I thought I would surely get at least a 176, but then nerves got the better of me. I did get a bit better at the test between July and September, but I think most of my improvement can be attributed to just not falling to pieces during the actual test. Many things can impact test-taking mindset, and taking the official test again obviously helps, particularly since I never took any proctored practice tests LSATs. I mainly use 7Sage for timing my practice tests. Okay. Still, I wanted to share this because the advice is so contrary to most of the advice on the internet. Finally, definitely acknowledge that I am lucky as I was able to take the day immediately prior to the LSAT off and that this isn't an option available to everyone. Okay. With all that said, here's my proposed pearl. If you are able to take the day before your official LSAT off, do so and take a practice LSAT in the morning of your day off. Curious to hear your thoughts and apologize if you have covered this before. Um, I'm still not hearing why taking the test the day before led this test taker to have a better mindset on because the day he's of the results test. oriented. He scored a 180, so now he looks back at everything he did and he goes, "Well, so maybe that's a pearl." It's just not. <laughs> you're right. Well, that's it, why he thinks it is. But I'm no, not no. That's sure. what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, you know, I would encourage people to, if you think that this is a thing for you, then maybe you should practice doing this and see how it goes. Um, sure. But do that with your practice tests. So people in my classes take proctored practice tests. On the weekends when I'm not teaching, they do practice tests. And Ben, same thing, right? When you teach night classes, but then 
they do practice tests on weekends. Yeah. Yeah. And you encourage them to come to those so that they don't freak out on the day of the test. I mean, it sounds like that's, (laughs) I have a better hypothesis about what happened here for anonymous, which is you didn't do any proctored practice tests. So you freaked out on the day that you did the first one. Yeah. I don't think it has anything to do with what you did the day before. I think it has to do with you never did any practice tests, which he acknowledges. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, if you think you're the type of person who needs to keep the ball rolling, I don't get locked in, as Anonymous says. Maybe. I, I don't know. Maybe that's a thing. It's not a thing for me. For me, it would be much better to just rest and declare victory and just decide that I, I've done all the prep I need to do. I would say that if this is going to work for anybody, it seems more likely to work for someone who's scoring high than someone who's scoring low. (laughs) Because a test is less draining to a higher score and there's less review to do. So, Yeah, and I would also say don't score yourself, whatever you do. But even then, you know whether you did well or not. Right? Like the disaster that can come from this is if you take that practice test the day before and you do poorly then you're going to like potentially just have this spiral downward. Yeah, maybe. I don't I feel like the better solution is not not scoring but recognizing that it doesn't mean anything because test scores go up and down. Yeah, In fact, well, if you do poorly. Sure. <laughs> if you can convince people of that, then they already don't have a problem. I mean, like well, I that's, think that's what we should try to do. I would try to I that's, I say that in my classes. I'm like, if you're if you're so concerned about the score, the last test score you got, like even if you took it a week before and you're like, "Oh, this is going to be my test score." It's like, n- "No, it's not. In fact, if you score lower, you're probably going to score higher on test day just as things revert to the mean or whatever that phrase is." But uh, um if you score higher and then you're so like, oh, I'm on the right path, it's like, um, yeah, maybe, but it's very likely that you could, again, revert to the mean and go down from whatever that score was. So I, I guess I don't look to that last test. Right. Well, you negative. shouldn't. Yeah. You, you shouldn't. I just think people do. I, I just, I, I never stop yelling about how you shouldn't take any data point too seriously. But I just know that people do. So I feel like this is a turd for most people because they're going to, some combination of tire themselves out, stress themselves out, worry too much about that final result. I just don't want people having a panic attack on the day before the test because their practice test was a few points lower. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't really care whether they look at their score or not, but I, I don't think this is a pearl because I think a lot of people need to be rested. So anyway, I it seems like, yeah, I think what you said is good. If you want to try this out, give it a go. Yeah. Take a test on Saturday and then take a test again on Sunday and see how your Sunday test goes. Now, if it goes but better... don't do that one time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do that once and you're like, yeah, that was a success. Yeah, This is all just small sample stuff, right? I mean, Anonymous got this tip from somebody who happened to score 180. Well, fine, you could get the exact opposite tip from someone else who scored 180. You know? Yeah. 
One other problem here too is that if you take it, if a lot of people go out out there take this advice that we're just giving right now, and maybe we shouldn't be giving it, and they take a test on Saturday and then they take another one on Sunday, you're kind of like working a lot and not necessarily benefiting from that work because what did you learn between your Saturday test and your Sunday test, right? Like you take a full test on Saturday, um, and if you're not scoring where this guy is scoring then review is going to take you a decent amount of time. And so now you're just going and taking another test without that review. Uh, people just, just... I would say in general... This is no, I think in general this is a turd. People people brutally overestimate the value of diagnostic tests. They think that they're supposed to take lots of tests so that they can see what their score is. I, I was on a phone call yesterday with a, a woman who... Is she's been scoring like real high on all her practice tests. Um, she's done every single test. You know the type. She's very like lawyerly, very type A, very nervous type. Mm-hmm. And she was, you know, she's asking that question that we get sometimes, which is, well, how can I possibly prep? You know, because I'm worried because when I take a practice test now, I've already seen it before and I have a pretty good memory and I don't remember the answer to every single question, but I do remember generally kind of what the question is about and you know that that line of questioning that we get a lot. Sure. And yeah. um, I say the same thing I always do, which is just, I don't care. Like it, it's not, the point isn't to see what you scored. The point is to get the work in, see what questions you struggle on, and then review those questions so that you can learn, so that you can make progress. That's the entire point of taking the practice tests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, is I, yeah, I just don't know that. Like anonymous, are you really learning anything from that practice test that you take the day before your official test? And he would probably say, "No, I'm not learning anything, but it's getting me locked in, whatever that means." I guess whatever that means. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a conclusion to me. Right, so your evidence for this is one data point, which is you know one data point, and then otherwise it's just conclusory. You say you felt that way, okay? I mean, but it also sounds to me like almost a self fulfilling prophecy. You just if you feel like you need to do that, then yeah, you probably need to do that. But if you don't feel like you need to do that, then I'm pretty sure you don't need to do that. Now, to be fair, we make a lot of conclusory, self fulfilling. <laughs> potentially self-fulfilling claims on the show. And I would like to test a lot of this stuff out. You know? Uh, it's hard to do though. And have not figured out a way to actually test it objectively. But oh well. Lots of different ways to get there. Thanks Anonymous for writing in. I I feel like I could be generous and give this a tie. Re- really? I mean, I don't think we'd ever walk away from here and say, like, take a test the day before. You want to just put it straight in the turd pile? I mean, if that's the tip, like, am I ever going to tell someone to do a test the day before? Mm, Yeah. No, I'm not. Probably not. (laughs) I mean, I've scheduled practice tests two days before, but that's so that they, if they decide to take it, they still have a day off. I don't know. Yeah. I think this is, I think this is out. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was feeling generous, but uh, you 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 talk some sense into me. Well, I think w- the way we look at these things, right, is that this is will advice you ever for the vast majority. 
<laughs> yeah. Will you ever say that? And I think we would always say, look, if if some piece of advice that we rail against forever somehow does in fact help you and you've convinced yourself and shown it to be the case, do it. Like we ultimately want what's going to work for you. But um, so I think we're always open to the fact that our advice is subject to exceptions. And just in general, we think you'll probably save yourself time if you do what seems to work for most people. Yeah. And also, I don't know, maybe just don't over engineer all this shit too much, right? <laughs> like, sure. there's lots of ways. If you're the type of person who can consistently score in the high 170s and lots of 180s on your practice tests, the truth is, it doesn't fucking matter what you do the day before the test. Yeah. Like, you're a badass and you know you're a badass. And so you could fucking join the circus the day before the test. I don't care. Like, it, what it doesn't make any difference what you do. I guess I kind of like the day off if you're fortunate enough to take the day off, but even that, it doesn't matter. You could fly back on an international flight the day before the test and still go in and score a 180. Yeah. <laughs> if, if it was you, Ben, you were going to go take the test and I had to like bet on you, I wouldn't give one shit what you did the day before the test. I'd just be like, nah, he'll be fine. Yeah. And it's fine. <laughs> All right. Want to do this uh, favorite drink? Sure. Hey, Nathan and Ben. I've seen on social media that you've done drinking LSAT a few times. What's your guys' favorite drink? Uh, can I buy you guys one after the LSAT I took today? Games were easy as fuck. Chris, what's your favorite drink, Nathan? Oh, too many to count, but I don't know. Whiskey? I like an old-fashioned. Okay. I'd prefer a South Block Super Green with ginger. What the hell is that? It's a health drink. It's not an alcohol drink. <laughs> like if I had a choice, I would drink that. It's gonna. I'd rather be healthy, but uh, maybe like a mojito. I've seen Ben. I've seen you multiple times ask the bartender, "What's the sweetest drink you have?" That's true. Yeah, that's so pretty that's much. Been, that's that's my go-to drink. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had to I had to make something at the airport the other day and um she was like, Okay, yeah, yeah. And she was coming up with different things to mix in with rum. It still wasn't that great. I'm I'm very uh, hard to please when it comes to these alcoholic beverages. I think you get a pina colada. Yeah, I don't know. I've had that before too. I just not, You don't like a pina colada? Expense. It's so unique to the drink sometimes. It's like a milkshake. Yeah. It's a coconut milkshake with rum in it. It's awesome. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Thanks, I don't know. Chris. The one I had wasn't like great. Sorry, Chris. Thank you uh, for writing in, Chris. Um, congratulations on the test. Send us a note when uh, send us a note when you figure out what you got. Love to hear it. Help at thinkingalset.com. All right. Uh, we got an email here that says, "Where should you apply?" Now that I have my LSAT score back, I have to figure out which schools to apply to. When looking at the LSAT GPA calculators, at what percentage should you even should you not even bother applying? I've heard conflicting information. Some say that if there's more than a 0% chance, then go for it because you have a chance, even if it's a low one. Others say not to bother if there's less than a 50% chance. <laughs> 
Others say only apply to a school where there's less than a 50% chance if you're an underrepresented minority, but they don't exactly specify what constitutes an underrepresented minority. Are there any words of wisdom that you can provide in this area? And this is also from Anonymous. Okay. Um, There's a lot of bullshit, one-size-fits-all advice out there. Can you imagine people popping off on the internet? Like, don't even apply. If it's less than a 50% chance, you can't get in unless you're an underrepresented minority. By definition, what a crock a of 40% shit. chance means that four yeah, in 10 are getting only in. only have, like... Well, also, look at the numbers of URMs at the school. The reason why URMs get a boost in admissions is because there aren't that many of them in the school. Like if you're worried about some, you know, underrepresented minority taking your seat in law school, you're worrying about the wrong fucking thing. <laughs> that is not your problem. Um god, that's bad advice. I mean, the 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 representation of URMs in these schools is like 20% or 15% or <laughs> come on. That's just horrible advice. And then other people, it's so weird. People get their emotions all tied into it. And they like, people will not apply to schools that they think are going to deny them because they don't want the blow to their ego. So then they just shut themselves down. Yep. Oh, I'm not even going to bother applying because I don't want them to deny me. Oh, so you're just going to deny yourself? Yeah. Okay. Well, I I don't usually think about percentage like the percentage chance that you have of getting in because I'm I'm usually focused on the 509 reports and kind of coming up with my own thought based on where you are around those numbers. Yeah. I I think the calculators are useful for maybe generating ideas or giving yourself just sort of some yeah. rough yeah. idea. But you have to realize that it's aggregate applying to it's all the applicants, you know, and so that means that yeah, some of them are URMs, some of them are fifty years old, and you know, like a different looking type of candidate. Some of them have amazing resumes, some of them don't. I guess if I were to go off the baseline, just to get your search started, I would consider schools in which you have a twenty-five percent chance to be roughly a, a reach, fifty percent chance you're target and 75% chance your safety. I think higher than that. Well, see, that's the thing is it could be, it could be good because then if you go to, if you apply to a school that you have a 90% chance to, well, you're probably also going to get a full ride and that that could be a benefit. I I don't know. I would consider a lot more about where you want to practice and then um, look at the schools in that area. And even if there are schools in that area that you don't want to go to, some people are like, oh, I would never apply there because I'd never accept it like an admission there. Well, that's that's fine, but local schools are competing with each other even if they have different yeah. rankings. And so apply there so that you can then leverage any admission you get there to get Also, into your you should schools. rethink your I would never go there. Yeah, like, you should. Wait, what do you mean you would never go there? But, You're turning up your nose at a school that will create, I mean, you know they make hundreds of lawyers every year, right? You want to be a lawyer, right? You know, you're going to just judge them off right off the bat because why? What? Well, one thing, yeah. Even if you can't convince someone to give up on that idea that they would never go there, at least if you can convince them to apply, then they might change their minds later when they realize, oh, 
hmm, I just got a, I got a full ride here. I guess I could go here, <laughs> but at least apply, right? Even if yeah, you, and talk to people who did go there with a full ride. Also, by the way, mm-hmm. like go, uh, just throw in the application, get your full ride, and then you know let's see what kind of a snob you want to be about it. Because if you actually talk to someone who went to that school on a full ride, you might meet a lawyer. <laughs> you might meet someone who like is an actual lawyer now who kicks ass. Yeah. And you might then, I don't know, yeah, it just might start looking a little better. <laughs> I, you, you mentioned geography. I think geography is really important. If you're serious about, I mean, I'm in California and you know California is a real big state. Most people who are from California want to stay in California um, because of the weather. I'm always including my San Francisco or encouraging my San Francisco students to apply to basically all the schools in the San Francisco Bay Area and Sacramento. And then I'm I'm always telling them to also consider probably doing the same thing in the LA area. But you can, if you look at these calculators, you'll get a sense of like what the schools, you know, what type of people these schools tend to admit. And then, yeah, if it's above 80%, you're probably thinking scholarship. If it's around 50%, you're thinking, well, you know, probably get in, maybe, you know. And then the below, like 25%, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a reach. Like you should probably apply to a few of those just to see what happens. Yeah. I don't know. What you're going to say something about the 509? Yeah, five oh nines are a good place to look too. I, I tend to think that if you look at if you Google five oh nine, just those three numbers and whatever school you're thinking of, UVA, for example, then the first search result will almost certainly be the PDF. Yeah. It's ugly looking PDF that says UVA's five oh nine numbers. That's just a report required by the ABA. But in in any case, on that report you'll see the 25th, the 50th, and 75th percentiles for both LSAT and GPA. And I would say that if you're above the 50th percentile in both of those numbers, LSAT and GPA, you're almost certainly going to get in. And you can also look on that same report to see how much um, scholarship money they tend to give out. And you just scroll down the PDF and you look at the, per- they just tell you exactly how many people are admitted and what percentage of those people have. Uh, a half a schol- you know, half tuition scholarship, greater than half tuition scholarship, greater than full tuition scholarship, all that stuff. And so you can figure out roughly, again, this is all pretty rough anyways, but what are your chances of getting a full ride given your numbers? So I would say any schools in, it's just valuable information. Just look at that and figure out like, if you have a chance, go for it. And you can mitigate the costs to you by simply asking for a fee waiver from all these schools. Any school that gives you a fee waiver and is not way outside of your realm of possibility, uh, I think you should just go ahead and apply, especially if you can get them to waive the LSAC fee. Yeah, ask for the LSAC fee waived. That's a little harder to get, but you should also be just kind of saving your pennies and plan on spending $1,000 for your applications. You might have to pay a couple applications fees and then a whole bunch of those stupid report fees. Yeah. And it's nothing compared to the price of law school. And you want to get yourself those multiple offers so that you have (laughs) some leverage in the negotiations. I mean, I'm sure that some people will be upset about that because that's a high uh, amount of 
it can be a lot of money for some people. But one thing to think about is if think about the difference between what someone can sell their house for if they have two bidders versus just one. Yeah. Right. If you if someone is bidding on your house and they're the only other person, they're the only person bidding on your house, you're kind of just like negotiating with them. As soon as you have two people, they're negotiating with each other and that drives up the price. Now imagine you're bidding with like four or five people. Um, it just pushes the price up. So what's my point? When you have more than one option with law school, you can easily, in almost all cases, recover that that thousand yeah. dollars. And you'll see what you're worth. Like even if it's not even if you don't like actually show those offers to other schools, you have seen those offers. And it's amazing what you can see people's like mindset change because they're like they they they're like if when people apply to ten schools and they get back you know six or seven different offers, then I see them start going like, well, there's no way in hell I'm going to pay full price for that school. Yeah, because I have this I have a full ride right here from this school, and it's like yeah I know I've been telling you that <laughs> this whole time that that's what was going to happen, but then once you actually yeah. see the offer, you realize like oh wow. I have a choice here. I could pay a shit ton of money to go over there or I could go here for free. Hmm. Yeah, or even if you end up going to the place where you have to pay something, you're going to be much more willing and confident to ask for money. Because you know that if, yeah. if it doesn't work out or if they get offended, which they never do. <laughs> they might act like they are. You might act like it. but that even, Part of a negotiation. Not really. Yeah, I mean, even if they do seem offended, you can always have a fallback. That fallback allows you to press forward with more confidence. So anyways, I guess we're not really answering your question, but <laughs> apply broadly and apply to places that you'd like to end up because most lawyers end up practicing where they go to school. Yeah, totally. You want to uh, check out this next email um, from Arizona? Yeah. Read the subject carefully. Okay. The subject, wait, what? Draft 162 plus email. You impressed us. So they forgot to edit the subject? <laughs> yeah. Great. And it's a nice peek behind the curtain that that they had a like MailChimp or whatever bucket for people who have scored 162 or higher. Yeah. And so anybody who has scored a 162 or higher and was on their list got this email. Yeah. And then they forgot to edit that out. I wonder what they, they said it. to people. What about the people who scored below 162? Well, they didn't get you this impressed email. Us. No, there there might have been another <laughs> one. They're like, "Well, shit, we're not getting enough applications. All right, let's send out the 158 plus <laughs> 158 yep. to 161." Bucket. Let's start scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> but anyway, it's just funny because, like, you know, this school is. We looked up their ranking one time. It's not that bad. Oh, but this is Arizona. Oh, the state sucks. Don't don't get me wrong. The state's terrible. The school, University of Arizona Rogers, is ranked 39th uh, according to U.S. News and World Report. So this is a you know I'm sure that they would. Um, they would love to tell you about how they're a national law school and all that. Like they're, you know, 
prestigious. But they're sending out an email mm-hmm. saying like, wow, 162 or higher. That's amazing. I don't know. Hmm. I just thought it was a nice little yeah, peek behind the curtain. That is a great peek behind the curtain. Is that all we want to share from this? Or is there something else in the email? I think so. I know. I don't think, I don't know that there's anything more. I, it just, it was a good opportunity to shit on Arizona again and show what these schools are thinking. I mean, they're so desperate for your application, right? I, what I really want to do is put everybody, I want to put everybody in, um, just put them in a better position for negotiating, right? And so, like knowing that Arizona is doing this, then gives you a little bit more information about what they're really thinking. I don't know. I I thought it was I thought it was interesting. So I, I'm I am reading this email. Okay, go ahead. It it says here you will find a law school. Sorry, this is I'm just quoting one part of it. It says here you will find a law school that, in the words of one student, defies all stereotypes. The fuck does that mean? Uh, that. I don't know what that means. I'm like, okay, we have stereotypes about law schools and this one defies them all. So I hope that they attract competent individuals. Nope, this is being defied by the school. Like, what does that even mean? Anyways, um, I just find these marketing emails interesting. They're hustling. Just a takeaway here, don't ever quote it. (laughs) Don't ever put quotes. Oh yeah, that's quoting one of their own students. That it defies all, and it's a law student. Law students don't know anything. <laughs> that's so lame. <laughs> wow. Um, oh, here's a here's from a JD course evaluation comment. Uh, Professor Tony Massaro is brilliant, but even more, she shares that brilliance in a way that makes students feel heard. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> Okay, well, there. Go to University of Arizona, James Rogers College of Law, and you can experience a stereotype make, defying. Makes students game. feel heard is hilarious because like, that's my least favorite part of law school was hearing the other students. I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing when you hear 1Ls <laughs> and 2Ls popping off on their opinion of the law. It's the worst. There's like no point. No one cares. No one wants. You don't know anything. You're not a lawyer. No one, no one cares what your opinion is. It's not your opinion has no standing, no bearing whatsoever on anything. Like we should be here to learn shit, and instead we're here just like all these one L's rhapsodizing. I, I don't know. It's just it's such a joke. It's so stupid. Um, okay. Well, <laughs> should we? Um, I guess we've reached our final item on the agenda. Yeah. You want to hit it? Yeah. So I, it just, I mean, I don't know how far we can take this or it's, it's just an idea. And I just wanted to propose, see what you thought about it. But it did, it strike, it struck me suddenly that I felt like law school was a hell of a lot like Scientology. Okay. And there are some, so here, here's my case for that. Okay. I've complained for a long time that law school, it's basically like memorizing a whole bunch of dogma. Okay. Law school, like getting yourself into legal practice, you, you, it is kind of like learning a religion. Like you've got to, sure. you, you've got to memorize a bunch of shit that you're going to have to regurgitate on the bar exam three years, four years from now. Mm-hmm. And your opinion on those things does not matter. You are going to be required to memorize and cite these um, 
you know, holy words that have descended down to you from the historical, you know, priests of this profession. Sure. Law school. I get that. It, so it's like religion for sure. Because you, so here, you let know, me give you one of yes. the religious tenets of law school. Yes. See what you think of this. So I think that one of the tenets, and I don't necessarily disagree with this as I'm a pretty agnostic myself, but the law school is very amoral. I'm not saying that law schools are immoral, but they are amoral in the sense, well, it's weird too, because they definitely have some morals that they believe. But They pretend you know, that they're like super moral, but in, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, it's just like there's this constant like, I don't know, and the LSAT's kind of this way too, I think, but it's just picking it up from law school. And that is like, you know, you may think it's wrong to do something, but um, law school is constantly questioning that, right? Which is maybe healthy, but um, I don't know. I'm just trying to remember, like, I remember as a 1L, a lot of people would get, you know, in these heated discussions and then by by your second and third year, just everyone's pretty much come to accept that nothing matters. It's just like a different point of view or something. <laughs> There's two sides one. to every story and we're going to have to litigate. Yeah. And it just depends on how yeah, the pockets are. Yeah, two sides to every story. Yeah, that's a good one actually. Because it's like, yeah, there are two sides to every story, but some stories are really shitty. <laughs> yeah. and But, but lawyers kind of get in this mentality like, oh yes, but it's my duty to protect even, you know, corporations like Monsanto or something like that. And it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. They need legal representation, but they don't need, like how many lawyers go out there and are like, we know you're doing shit, but if you want to avoid legal consequence, here is the 25 hoops we're going to force your opponents to jump through. And it's like, okay, are you are you really helping society here? Is this really moving things along and getting shit done? Or is this like, that's why lawyers always win kind of thing? <laughs> Anyways. But I think it's a mentality that a lot of lawyers probably don't have when they start law school, but they leave and they just, they're like, yeah, they follow the drumbeat. Like, my job is to represent my client as vigorously as possible. Well, because they give some lip service. Yeah, that's part of what they they beat into you. So here's here's why I really thought that it was like Scientology is that it's very expensive brainwashing is what it is. And so is Scientology. Mm. In Scientology you have to pay for access to like the holy, you know, mumbo jumbo. Mm. That's exactly what law school is. You don't know what's inside until you start paying. That's just like Scientology. The more you go, the more you have to pay. That's just like Scientology. You're going to be required to like learn all of this, you know, weird mumbo jumbo. <laughs> There's a test at the front end of it to even be able to get in. So it's like, no, you can't just start like learning about it and reading about it. You have to take this test. <laughs> you know, Scientologists do give that stupid e meter test. That's one of the ways they recruit. It's like on the street, mm-hmm. like, here, take this e meter test. It's sort mm-hmm. of like, here, take this free LSAT. And then, yeah. you know, you just like, you get in, you start paying and you start paying and then you start memorizing and then they brainwash you yeah, and you're paying them for the brainwashing. It separates you from your friends and family. Law school is so time <laughs> intensive. It's so stressful. I mean, people do end up getting divorced and stuff. Yeah, no, I actually, um, was, were we talking about this earlier? Uh, when I took a, an ethics class. I don't know if it was an ethics class that was required for the bar. 
I feel like I had to do something when I was taking the bar exam. And in that class, that's when they said, you know, you're not allowed to sleep with your clients. I was like, okay, in exchange for legal services. That was nice to know. <laughs> um, but they also said that the, I guess, among professionals, lawyers, some studies have suggested that lawyers are the most dependent on substance abuse. So alcohol in particular. And I can't, I mean, it doesn't surprise me given the long hours, the uh, generally what, like combative atmosphere, right? You're essentially just a zero sum game. <laughs> and at least on the litigation side. And then this general amoral <laughs> like mentality. It's just not a good combination of things in general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder if Scientology gives scholarships. Oh, that would be interesting. Could we look at the ABA 509 report for Scientology? See what their admission standards are and see how much scholarships they give? Um, anyway, we welcome your feedback. Uh, please email help at thinkinglset.com if you see any other similarities or differences between Scientology and law school. We would love to uh, hear about them. I have a fear that some most people are going to laugh, but there's going to be some people who are going to be very mad. Well, welcome to the Thinking Outside podcast. Yeah, like like we don't we don't care about this that much. <laughs> no, right? I like, it was just a funny idea that crossed my mind last night. So I I figured if people are listening, um, you know, eighty minutes this into, the show, into the show, yeah. they either know what they're getting themselves into. I mean, maybe they're hate listening and they're just you know that's that's something that people do too, like just listening so that they could get more outraged. In which case, you're welcome. But um, I don't know. My lesson is, uh, or my, my point, I guess, for including all this was so many people start off super idealistic, go to law school, they don't know what they're getting themselves into, pay a shit ton of money and come out and work for like the man hmm. for real, like just totally idealistic going into it. And then by the time they get out, ah, oh, well, you know. There's two sides uh, to every story, and uh, I mean, I did well in law school. I got good grades, and uh, now I got this uh, offer from this law firm. And uh, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, the next thing you two know, years, and I'll be done. Yeah, and then the next thing you know, they're just representing the exact opposite of the people that they were hoping to represent um, because they paid so much for this very expensive brainwashing. Yeah. Um. So you know. Don't pay for law school if you can avoid uh, that that trap. Anything else you want to add, Ben, before we wrap it up for today? No, that's all. Okay. Thanks, uh, Anne Levine, for appearing on the show. Hopefully we'll have you back soon. You can give us the update on the, uh, ne the next half that you're going to run in December. Hope it goes better. Thanks for sharing your experience. Uh, to the listeners, you can join Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook. We're at Thinking LSAT on uh, social media. You can visit strategyprep.com to learn about Ben's classes in DC, foxlsat.com to learn about my classes in LA and San Francisco. Um, you can listen all sorts of ways. Please hit subscribe and rate and review and all the things in uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher. Or you can go directly to our website, thinkinglset.com. We will post a link to Anne's um, blog about the half marathon she ran. Uh, that'll be on the in the show notes, I'm sure. Thank you, Adam. 
at thinkinglsat.com. Um, anything you want to say about the LSAT demon? We continue to make progress on it, and we're excited for all the feed that, feedback that we've been getting. I mean, that thing just keeps growing. It's exciting. Thank you for everyone who keeps hitting the ask button. I have been steadily working. Um, I'm, in, I'm, go- I'm on the pace right now of about 10 LR explanations a day on average, which um, means that I'll have a written explanation for every logical reasoning question in about a year and a half. Holy shit, that's pretty good. A little less if I don't take any days off. Wait, is that when you when you say that a year and a half? Are you looking at all the explanations that are left to write, or are you saying just looking at all explanations? Because a lot of them have already been taken care of, right? So, well, yeah, I mean, not when you say a lot. Like I thought that I had written a lot for my logical reasoning encyclopedia. You know, that's a big ass book. Yeah, but that's only five hundred and fifty explanations. And we didn't have that many other written explanations. I mean, I've been grinding away on it for a few months, but I, I'm guessing that we have maybe half of the questions covered, probably not even half. But when you take into account videos, it's, it's close. Oh, like, no, we have a shit ton of videos. And yeah. also, all you got to do is hit the ask button and you'll get into the queue for new written requests. Yeah. So I'm getting to inbox zero, you know, once or twice a week uh, awesome, lately. Man. So, yeah, I've been I've been keeping up with it mostly. Um, I will warn people if you hit the ask button on ten different questions, um, I'm going to respond to one of those, and then I'm going to get to everyone else's questions, and then I'm going to come back and respond to another one of yours. So I'm kind of been like rotating through the queue. Mm-hmm. So for people who hit the button a lot, like there might be some that I'm not going to get back to you for a week or something, because um, that's just my new rule, right? If you only hit the ask button once, well, I'm going to do that one. Um, I'm 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 doing them in order received, except if you have submitted a ton of them in a row. Basically, that's my that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I feel like that's fair. Cool. That was episode 217 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. <laughs>